Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. This is Bat Chat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust, where we're taking you out into the field to discover the world of bat conservation. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Bat Chat, which is for anyone with an interest in the enigmatic mammals filling our skies at night. I'm Steve Rowe. Professionally, I'm an ecologist, and in my spare time, as well as doing this podcast, I'm a trustee for the Bat Conservation Trust. This is the penultimate episode of this series. The sounds you can hear are from a microphone which I've placed next to an artificial tree hole, which is home to over 60 lizard bats, and as well as the roost chasser, you can hear the scuffling sounds as they're leaving the bat box, which is made from a piece of tree trunk. This particular box is located on a National Trust property in the Midlands, but in the morning I'm off down to a property called The Vine, near Basingstoke, to meet the person who is essentially in charge of the largest number of bat roosts in the country. We're currently in the nearly the middle of August and I'm down in Hampshire, just north of Basingstoke with Jo Hodgkins. Jo's finished work for the day and she's got to get back to the Isle of Wight, so thank you for taking time out and staying behind to, to do the interview. You're the National Trust Nature Conservation Advisor for London and the South East. How did your career path get you to this amazing job? Oh gosh, yeah. It's, well, it started off way back when I was at school really um, just having a passion for nature and parents who luckily were interested in nature and wildflowers as well yeah so I actually my first roles were with the wildlife trusts sort of volunteering working doing um, wildlife site surveys and land management advice to landowners before managing a local record centre in local government and then deciding I really really needed to be back out again um, on the ground with people delivering for nature so yeah, luckily I got a project post with the National Trust, which uh, led to a full-time job, and that was 22 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. We've obviously got you on because you, amongst many things you do, you um, do a lot of the bat work. How often do you encounter bats in your day-to-day job, and have you ended up doing a lot of bat stuff with the Trust? Um, yeah, well, the, the Trust, um, as well as having all our land and um, estates, obviously a lot of old buildings, um, and most of them are bat roosts we encounter them through survey when we're doing our day-to-day work like repairs conservation work on buildings tree work but we did do a sample a few years ago to look at how often we might encounter bats so so we took a sample of buildings 
and determined that they had batteries or not and worked out that actually about 95% of trust buildings have batteries or bat potential land that's used for foraging. So we have a working assumption that on every project, every built conservation project we do, it's going to involve bats. So the role I have as a um, regional nature conservation advisor means that I'm the person who often advises on the process to you know, get sites surveyed, what's required, licensing and those kind of things, working with external contractors. So we have good networks of external partners and contractors we work with as well because I couldn't possibly do the <laughs> groundwork for, for all, all the projects that are involving bats at any one time. Um, so it's sort of advisory from my point of view. So probably in the average a week, I would say I'm probably dealing with bats or other protected species or calls about them probably every other day, something mm. like that. Yeah. And there's a project going on all the time. And, um, and in our region, probably double figures of projects at the minute involving bats. But I actually got into bats uh, th- through working with the Trust. I had kind of a casual interest in bats at, yeah. um before I came to work for the Trust and I'd started getting interested joining a local bat group but I didn't have that urge to kind of be a volunteer bat roost visitor and call around in people's lofts. <laughs> it wasn't until coming to the Trust and actually working with someone who was a bit of a mentor, a guy called David Bullock um, with bats who sort of challenged me to get my licence, get my rabies jabs because I'm a bit needle phobic or I was <laughs> several years ago Said so, and and if I did that I could go on um, uh, some mining, some mine checks for horseshoes um, in Gloucestershire so um, that challenge was kind of enough really and <laughs> yeah I, that, that's how I kind of got into it and from then on just got much more actively involved in doing bat work and more of the sort of survey and research side of it and and stuff for the trust as well sort of using my license to get access to some really fabulous old buildings rather than sort of dusty lofts like big (laughs) big mansion lofts with roosts in so yeah i'm very lucky and you you said there a working assumption that all trust buildings or at least 95 percent of them have roosts and when you put that into context the trust owns over fifty thousand buildings so the Trust probably is the largest single roost owner in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Clearly you've got a huge responsibility for our bat species and populations. What sort of work does the National Trust do to help conserve bat species? And, and yeah, what sort, of, what sort of conservation projects do you have to think about? The Trust obviously has to update its building with things like fire eggs. How often do bats crop up and cause, not issues, but c- complications for projects, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's in the vast majority of projects really um we we have um within the trust of a a cohort building surveyors who lead a lot of the conservation work on our built heritage buildings and even our residential sort of letter state um so i work with them quite a lot in the region we 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 try and roll out refresher training every now and again just so they're uh, au fait with the sort of basics and who to go to when they're planning projects and how to you know commission bat surveys and preliminary ecological assessments and roost assessments so that's kind of our process is that you know right at the start is plan early we know we're going to encounter protected species usually bats great crested newts and others and when we're doing conservation work to get those assessments in early as a matter of course try and keep people educated and trained and then run with the projects as they unfold so sort of an, an example sometimes they can be really straightforward so it'll be 
you know, electrical work or fire alarms in a cottage on one of the trust estates, so sort of the residential estate. Or, as you said, it could be the big fire compartmentation projects where we have, you know, 16th century buildings with huge, great big roof spaces that are just open and we now need to deal with fire regs. So we've, we've sort of developed good relationships with our fire officers as well and tried to test and then develop approaches to putting you know, back flaps, back doors in firewalls in our lofts after getting um, proper surveys and assessments and trying to make a big emphasis on monitoring those afterwards as well to see if it's worked and if yeah. things are still effective. Um, yeah, to actually the ones that are, are more challenging, like a big re-roofing project on a you know grade one listed mansion of national significance um, and uh, or, you know, really sort of far more complicated projects where we're also sort of testing how we do it. So on... Um, a swarming site for example um, in one of our properties so yeah really challenging I mean we're here at the, the Vine at the moment so that was uh, a few years ago a big re-roofing project so we did a lot of work on that to make sure we accommodated you know, the, I think it's three species of bat that roost here in the building So, and, ju- and just tell us a bit more about that roost then in terms of, because we're sat we can just see the corner of the building through the trees just tell us a bit more about that project then um, yeah so it's a um, I'm going to forget the architectural significance <laughs> of the building now, but um, yeah, it's a, a huge uh, mansion with various phases of development, um, some from sort of early medieval onwards. The conservation condition reviews of the built structure revealed that there are problems with the roof, you know, and leaks, uh, chimneys that were structurally um, unsound. So we had a, a major project over a number of years to re-roof and repair and doing doing it in such a way it also kept in touch with the history of the building, but also the species of bat and other wildlife we had here. So the early part of feasibility development was getting all those surveys done. Um, yeah, I think it's three species roost here, um, but I, I might have remembered that wrong. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so we did have maternity roosts. Um, we had whiskered, uh, long brown long-eared and pips, I think. Um, and so, we'd, working with a consultant, we developed a sort of phased approach to the building work, uh, working outside of the sort of sensitive periods under licence, um, putting back bat access, you know, putting back roosts, enhancing as we went as well, well working in with the, the building as well. So we developed, you know, there was there's several phases of roofing tile here, for example, and stone. So we've got different um, bat access tiles for each kind of architectural um, character of the roof bit sort of little uh, uh, consultant called them little bat ladders she developed working with the contractor that got bats up under the tiles and over like um, lath and plaster work so yeah so lots of that was done with a sort of good contractor as well Um, and alongside actually showing the public what we were doing as well so alongside a big big project to to do the re-roof as well as all the protected species work it has involved it was also having scaffold access for members of the public to to look at what we were doing and look at the work we're doing to take nature into account and um just showing sort of that best practice really we visited lake Abbey with wendy priest from wiltshire back group this series where they've got soprano pipitrals emerging from the mouths of gargoyles on shangton's tower what are the usual roost sites do you have or do you have a favorite roost 
Oh gosh, that's a difficult question. Yeah, I mean a lot of them are in um, roof spaces, but I, I think one of my favourites is is actually Cliveden, where we have a swarming site um, under what is a you know is a hugely architecturally important structure, the South Terrace. Um, so there are, if you imagine, it's got huge archways. They're like the mouths of caves, uh, big brick and stone vaults, and that has autumn swarming. And that is one of my favourites because we kind of stumbled upon it almost in the early part of um, feasibility for that project and just having a look around the building thinking, ah, there are bat droppings here. And and then uh, I and a local consultant as well, who was also in the bat group I was a member of at the time, sort of just having a little bit of an investigation and thinking, ah, we think we've got, we might have swarming here, which is just really exciting, you know, and it's been kind of an exciting journey and a challenging journey as well, just working out how we could do the conservation work on that structure and just keep that significance for wildlife as well. When I was researching questions for this, I was looking at what you've put on the, the National Trust website and I was thinking, well, you must have roosts or at least your properties obviously have support for all 17 species but then am i right in thinking you've also you also in the railway tunnel where the one bat turns up for grace mouse in it yeah we do yeah <laughs> that's yeah that is in my my region but i, I actually um share the region with another nature conservation advisor and that property is in his portfolio <laughs> so i haven't ever been in there i would love, dearly love to um but yes we do we do have that that very special bat or two now yes yeah so uh yeah we have got that as well yeah so it's, it's great and we see headlines all the time now that changes in farming practices are a main factor in the decline of wildlife in the last few decades obviously a large proportion of NT land is farmed so how much of a focus does the trust have with regards to encouraging farmers and their tenant farmers to manage land with wildlife in mind and how effective is it and um, yeah that's um a really big push that the trust is trying to do at the moment what has been trying to do for the sort of last eight nine years of our current strategy period is to try and improve the condition of our land for nature including that tenanted farmland i mean we don't manage it in hand the vast majority of that it's managed through uh, sort of farming partners our farm tenants um and we we try to work with them to to improve the state of nature on farm um and obviously that has its challenges but we have some wonderful examples within the trust um and within the team i work in we've got a farm advisor as well land use and farming advisor who's you know trying to do the same thing as well whether it's you know changing the way someone farms from perhaps a conventional intensive model to sort of regenerative model um we've we've started to look at um effectiveness of our interventions on our farmland um but it's early days we've we've done some work which um, over the last few years is Bat Conservation Trust actually um, comparing uh, bats on trust land and off trust land to see if mm. there was a difference if we could use it as a metric for a sort of strategic metric for measuring how effective some of those land management changes have been and that was a really interesting piece of work um, we didn't have significant results for all species just some and the, the, the size of the data the amount of data we needed for effective sample to detect change was quite challenging as well. Um, so that's still something we'd like to explore more in future. At the moment of this strategy period, we have got effectively what we call one of our outcome metrics, which is bats. The others are butterflies, birds and plants to detect you know, how effective we're being 
overall with our yeah. strategy changes and, and influencing our farm tenants. And are those conservation practices, things like increasing margins to field, is it that sort of thing you're, you're talking it's, about? It's, it's a whole range, to be honest. I mean, what working with um, farmers, you know, is also taking into account sort of their business model as well, whether you can diversify or help them change. So it, it might be no... Um, field margins more hedges uh, might actually be taking some land out of food production for nature or diversifying their grazing model making it more extensive um, whether it's um, direct intervention into sites so to green hay grasslands plant more trees or allow more natural regeneration so it's it's a huge range um, you know right from those tree planting projects transforming land management effectively to just simple things like field margins good hedge management um yeah weedy margins small small interventions like that and or even soil you know just making sure a soil's in good health as well and i've seen it in my um national trust properties in in the region i come from up in the midlands we've seen the national trust either um taking on long-term leases or buying new land at sort of landscape scale is the trust working towards more of a landscape scale in terms of its effectiveness and taking on less of a property portfolio is it looking to move into the landscape side of things um i think it's still a bit of both yeah we're definitely trying to work at a landscape scale but that might not necessarily be through acquisition that could be through working in partnership with neighboring landowners whether they're you know ngos private landowners farmers um, etc so it's it's um whatever works for the particular situation really and that might be acquisition in some cases it can be just working more closely with some of our own tenants and working in partnership so it's it's the whole range but absolutely you know we've we, within the trust we're within our sort of what we call our sort of land and nature sphere of work we're very much following those Lawton principles and we we've got you know, internal measures that kind of reflect those as well so we're we're often trying to make our own land holding better as well as you know increasing the habitat um, we have creating restoring habitat connecting it as well into partners land or our own land so yeah definitely trying to do that landscape scale piece coming back then to properties like this one obviously a lot of them are closed at night how does national trust enable the general public to experience bats on their properties and and what sort of things are you doing and can you do more um yeah it's um a lot of the time in terms of doing more it's just merely down to capacity <laughs> in a lot of places um yeah but yes i mean we do we have lots of brilliant rangers and lots of bat group partners as well who help run bat walks on properties uh, we have some places that have cameras like cctv and battery so we're able to show that on social media or in visitor centers it's uh, it sort of really depends on the place really I mean I think there's all there's always the challenge to try to do more and try to be more innovative about it um so yeah we definitely look to to sort of try and take some of those opportunities yeah I think there are some properties who have also trialed out of hours access like through doing something we used to call the big camp but we did for a few years and still happens on some properties where people you know we organize a camp for the night where we do bat walks or might be running some bat surveys at the time just incidentally so we you know show people what we're doing you touched on bat groups there what role do local bat groups play in the trust work and from derbyshire where i'm from we've got access to quite a lot of properties and presumably lots lots of bat groups have the same across the country yeah it's a really good partnership work there i mean i mean it's 
the, the trust relies on volunteers essentially to do a lot of its work and particularly when we're talking about some of our wildlife monitoring the sort of the routine sort of the stuff like butterfly transects roost counts those kind of things we very much rely on volunteers to do that and working with back groups is brilliant in that respect to you know, help us galvanize and train other volunteers to monitor some of our roosts to help us with bat work and um, bat walks and engage people um, with bats yeah so there, there's some really good partnerships with bat groups and you know we always encourage all of our properties to you know find out who your local bat group members are or representatives you know and build that partnership because it's a really good one to have and then do you just want to talk about some of the the case studies that you've sort of have been memorable over the years in terms of stuff you've worked with on bats then um yeah well, i've sort of mentioned the vinery roofing project which was a, a big one where we developed sort of lots of interesting work to mitigate the impact on bats but um i mean there's there's some that have been um, have taken up sort of years of my life effectively <laughs> in good ways and bad <laughs> in the trust which because of the you know because of the length of time it can take to do some of these building conservation work so some some are memorable just for that but they're, they're also memorable because they're challenging when i'd mentioned clifton which was you know f- a five-year project to restore this hugely significant structure that we discovered we had autumn swarming in so how are we going to balance you know, working at the right time of year for some of the building structure things like lime mortars and things like that and, ha- and how we would then um, deal with you know autumn swarming hibernation use of the site um, the complications of licensing it and whether we need to how it works so we had lots of discussions with natural england and with uh, john altringham at the time he was a, a volunteer specialist for the trust it was hugely helpful navigating through that so we did find a you know um a really good working solution and a window where we could work and a contractor who really understood that and helped deliver that so it was a very um sort of long five years making you know phasing work when it would have the least impact you know um always um vacating the, the structures and leaving them bat friendly you know every by the end of august every year just to make sure we had you know all that swarming uh, capacity there so that was that was really challenging as and a sort of a favorite in the way that that it we learned an awful lot and um you know delivered it and we think it's been successful <laughs> with the, the sort of post project monitoring we've done but there were challenges along the way i'd have to be honest and then another another project that i'm sort of quite fond of just because i really love the property it was just one of the fire compartmentation projects at, um Charleston yeah so uh, uh, it's quite a small manor house that the trust has only had since the 90s and it's it's not one that's like presented to the museum standard that the mm. trust often does with its collections it when it was um, acquired it was in it was lived in as a family house and so it has that air about it and that's one reason I love it because you walk into it and you just think yeah I could live here it's just really lovely um, but it has these fabulous roofoids um, that have uh, long-eared roofs in and myotis. Um, and historically, also horseshoes, apparently. Um, another reason it's sort of a favourite is because uh, pre- uh, one of the family who used to be involved there sort of 
told one of my colleagues when she was a girl that horseshoe bats, I think it's lesser horseshoe bats, used to fly down the staircase within the house from the lofts and sort of exit at basement level and they would sit and watch them. And I just thought, how fantastic and wouldn't it be wonderful if we got that back at some point um, into the property? But, I mean, they, they, they haven't ever been there in, in sort of my tenure. We had um, some potential... Well, a say some a potential dropping of a horseshoe in one of the old stable buildings there, or probably in the early two thousands. But I've never found anything since. But it would be fantastic if horseshoes came back there. And then this is a horrible question. Do you know what the largest roost you've got is? Well, ah, oh, now there was. I, I don't know if this is still current figures, but um, we I did some work about now it must be eight years ago looking at um, the. Imp- of mitigation work we've done so I went back to case studies where we've done building work with bats done mitigation and, and tracked the success or not of it and doing that I came across um, a, a roost of soprano pipistrels which was at the time of the work counted at 1500 so yeah, I don't know if we've got a bigger one than that <laughs> at the moment yeah, I thought that was pretty impressive I mean I know there's a seat in Delaval um, in the north, there are hibernating pips as well. I think some of those estimates were sort of in um, 300s, but she's pretty good for hibernation, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I'm, I don't know if we've got, you know, the, the good good enough data really about numbers to, to know the, our biggest roost, but that's that's got to be a contender. Joe Hodgkins, thank you very much for taking time out to go on Bat Chat. Thank you, it's been brilliant chatting. Massive thanks to Joe for taking the time to sit with me in the baking August sunshine to give us that insight into bats at the National Trust. We've put a link in the show notes to some of the National Trust webpages about bats, as well as links to more information about bats in historic buildings. We'll be back in two weeks' time when I'll be over in Wales, and you'll be joining me at the entrance to a cave in amongst temperate rainforest for the final episode of this series. Catch you then. Now lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store, the link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Batchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to BatChat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow BatChat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.